Welcome to Invisible Heat. I am Sadia Khan. And I'm Asad Bhatt. And our story today takes us to Denver, Colorado in June of 1984. Alan Berg topples out of his car onto the pavement of his driveway. Bullets soar through the air in rapid-fire succession, striking Berg to the ground. Blood pools around his body, the damage irreparable. The attack is quick, ending just as suddenly as it began. Before long, the perpetrators are driving away from the house, leaving Berg dying on the pavement. Behind him, the car door sits half open. Berg's final action frozen in time. This is Invisible Hate. Welcome back to Invisible Hate, a weekly true crime podcast in which Asad and I attempt to uncover the ugly truths behind various hate crimes, both recent and historical. Yeah, that's right, Sadia. Many of the cases that we discuss involve crimes committed against minority groups. Our goal is to determine through a discussion of the nuances and the complexities of these situations whether or not these transgressions can be considered hate crimes. Before we begin today, Sadia, how was your week? My week was okay, Asit. So as you know, I was on a vacation, supposed vacation, and I was excited about it because the summer was pretty shitty for me. As you know, my husband was in an accident and my kids left for college and I was really, really looking forward to this one vacation. Yeah, totally. And then I arrive at our destination and I'm sick. Oh, no, that's the worst. It is the worst. I was missing New York so much. I was missing my home, my bed. <laughs> and you hate to travel anyway. I hate to travel. So I was getting anxious before my travel. And then this thing happens. And I'm just, you know, in the room, isolated for five days because I thought... Oh, man, so your husband didn't even take care of you? This was like... Vacation slash his work. Oh, oh, okay. To be fair, so he to was him. working, and you were. This was vacation for you, and so it okay, was supposed it. to be vacation for me. Yes, and then I was stuck at this hotel room for five days. Oh my! And goodness. I only went out for basically two days before we had to leave, which wasn't fun at all. That sounds horrible, and I've been there. I think a lot of us who who travel, you know, and go on vacation, it happens, and hopefully next time we'll be. A lot better. Uh, for yeah, sure. now I need to go on another vacation to make up for this vacation. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> How was your week, Asad? Yeah, my week has been good. I'm trying to think of uh, what has been of interest. Did I tell you that we are teaching uh, Isha how to swim? Oh my gosh, is yeah. Isha already five? <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's the cutest little thing it's so every saturday morning uh we go take her to you know this little swimming pool that's probably you know no bigger than like you know a bedroom and yeah she has 20 minute lessons she's you know she's only six months old and so it's really just getting her used to the water but Sadia, last week, they they put her face in the water. Oh. You know, kids at that age have the instinctual, you know, reflex to hold their breath. But it's still really scary I'm to sure. see your kid. Oh, my God. You know, Isha comes out of the water. And it was like, 
she was hardly phased at all. She was like, okay, this is normal. And I'm pretty sure as a parent, you were freaked out. Oh, I was freaking out. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, they, they have you go under as well so that when they can see you, you know, go under, then come up and and be happy and, and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, yeah, internally, you're like, oh, my God, she's going to drown, even though, she, you know, it was just for like less than a second. So, yeah, anyway. It's so exciting, you know, for a parent <laughs> yeah. to see all these different milestones, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, it's really exciting. And I'm glad that she's starting early, that she gets used to the water and she loves it. And we love it as well, for sure. So now we just have to get a pool. I love it. <laughs> so, Asit, should we start? Yeah, let's get back to the case. So today's case is about Allen Berg's murder. And Sally would love to know uh, more details about the case. Let's get started. Absolutely. It's a pleasant summer night in Denver, Colorado, June 18, 1984. Radio talk show host Alan Berg drives home from dinner with his ex-wife, Judith Lee Berg. Judith is in town from Chicago visiting her parents and the two have gone out to dinner to catch up. Berg drops her off before making his way home to his apartment at 1445 Adams Street. Unbeknownst to Berg, three men crouch in the shadows of his driveway, awaiting his return. The men are members of a neo-Nazi white supremacist group known as The Order. And unfortunately for Berg, he seems to have made it onto their hit list. Members of the group have allegedly been following the talk show host around for a few weeks, gathering intel on his typical whereabouts. Berg pulls into the driveway, putting his Volkswagen Beetle into park. As he opens the driver's seat door, one man emerges from the shadows. In his hands, 45 caliber Mag-10 machine gun equipped with a silencer. Before Berg can even fully open the door, the man raises the gun and starts shooting. A cascade of bullets soar through the air, striking Berg immediately. A total of 13 rounds pass through his torso, arms and face before splintering the garage door behind him. Berg collapses to the ground, his feet still perched in the parked car. Blood pools around his wounded body. He has sustained a total of 34 wounds. The damage is immediate and irreparable. Within seconds of the shooting, Berg dies right there in the driveway, overcome by bullet wounds. As for the perpetrators, they're gone in an instant, driving away from the crime scene as fast as possible. In their wake, a violent devastating loss. Sadia, this is just atrocious. I mean, so much of it, you know, first off, obviously him being shot with 13 rounds of bullet, but then you said a total of 34 wounds. So some of the bullets went through him twice. Yeah. I mean, that's just crazy. I'm also thinking about someone was following him or people were following him. You know, and for a few weeks, gathering intel about him. I mean, sadly, if you and I were 
being followed right now, we would have, I feel like we, we wouldn't know, right? And so... We wouldn't, Asit. And that's the scary part, right? I feel like now when I'm in my car, I'm going to be looking around to see... If somebody's following Who's going to be following, yeah, following us. Maybe somebody uh, who doesn't like invisible hate. Maybe somebody who doesn't like invisible hate. Hopefully there there aren't any anybody like that out there. But uh, yeah, really scary. And for him to be shot like that, you know, on his way home or in his, you know, in his driveway... Really, really atrocious. So, Sadi, it seems like Berg is a pretty significant figure, like a radio host, like you said, in in the Denver area. Can you tell us more about him? Absolutely, Asad. We have a lot of information to share about Berg, his life story, and his impact on the community. For this particular story, we feel that it's important we paint a clear and complete picture of the victim as Ellenberg was a unique personality asset. Yeah. Understanding him will hopefully help us further understand both the context and the impact of this crime. Now, Ellenberg was born in Chicago in 1934. He was 50 years old at the time of his death in 1984. Berg was the son of two Jewish parents, a dentist and a clothing shop manager. According to Rolling Stone, he was always very critical of his father, Joe Berg. And here's why I said, when Alan was growing up, his father practiced dentistry in a Christian neighborhood, which is fine. That's not the problem. But his father attempted to pass himself off as a non-Jewish man, all while seriously attending synagogue on the weekends. Oh, interesting. So essentially, you know, we're assuming that his father felt like he couldn't be public about his Judaism because it might cause people not to come to his dentist practice. Probably. Yeah, I think that's probably what, what is happening here, yeah. But as said, this infuriated young Berg who saw his father as both a hypocrite and a bigot against anything Jewish. Mm. This is when he first began to develop a sense of disdain and anger towards bigotry of any kind. When he was 17 years old, Berg began attending college at the University of Colorado, Boulder. By the way, it's a great school. Oh, is it? I've never been. <laughs> After two years in Boulder, Berg transferred to the University of Denver. According to the Colorado Encyclopedia, he then spent the next few years moving between a variety of institutions, oh, including wow. the University of Miami, DePaul University and Northwestern University. So just struggling to find his place somewhere. He is struggling, but it's so interesting, Asad, because I went to University of Denver at one point. I wanted to do master's in marketing. I mm. did a quarter and then we moved to New York, which I'm glad we did. But Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, that was like I spent a quarter there. My brother went to Northwestern for oh, his engineering. So a lot of schools here are familiar in some form or shape. Yeah, sure. Anyways, Berg eventually landed back at DePaul where he graduated from law school. Nice. In 1958, he married Judy Halpern and the two settled in Chicago where Berg established himself as a successful, guess what, criminal defense lawyer. Oh, that's great. And then things started to go downhill. 
Hmm. Berg began questioning his career, realizing that his behavior as a lawyer went against his moral principles. He was cheating on his wife, struggling with seizures and depression, and losing a tough battle against his raging alcoholism. So a um, lot of things were happening at the time. Yeah, certainly seems like that. According to a Rolling Stone interview with Berg, he said, and I quote, "All of a sudden, I was doing all the things I had always been ridiculously critical of. I learned that lying was the single most destructive thing in my life, and practicing law like that is a form of lying. The drinking was a great way not to face the ugliness I saw in myself." Unquote. I said this quote really resonates with me because he is right. Lying is one big heavy burden that really brings people down right yeah and it, it just seems like yeah him i'm guessing defending you know people that maybe he thought did the crime but he was defending them anyway was really really hard for him to do and it felt like he was lying to himself which i get that you know i think that especially if he's a successful criminal defense lawyer then you're going to get more and more people who try to hire him yeah. and try to you know help them get off with whatever crime that they might have done as you said he probably was not able to deal with this and decided to abandon his law practice and move to denver where he entered saint joseph hospital to dry up oh that's good i mean he's getting himself better that's great yeah he's being intentional about it and he knows what to do right yeah. around the same time judy left him ending their marriage now i oh. don't know why we don't know the details and therefore it's hard to imagine Yeah, I mean I think when you're making this big of a change there are a lot of relationships that have to end or do end and and sometimes marriages don't survive that and so yeah. Absolutely. So once he had tried out Berg opened his own clothing shop called the Shirt Broker. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's a a different turn of events. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Maybe he has a an affection for clothing and and what not, but um I'm glad that he got away from the stuff that was really causing him to um spiral downwards and that's really cool <laughs> to open up a a shirt. So You mentioned though earlier that he was in talk radio at the time of his murder. So how did he get involved with that? That's a great question, I said. So one of Berg's friends, Larry Gross had a talk show on the KGMC radio station based out of the Denver suburb of Englewood. Given that Berg was such a good talker, Gross invited him on the show as a guest. Oh nice. It was immediately clear that the man was a natural behind the mic and he was soon hired by KGMC. So you're saying that Berg was like really connected and was able to charm, you know, listeners to the radio station. On the contrary, I said, and perhaps more interestingly, Berg knew how to anger his audiences. Oh, interesting, okay. <laughs> his approach was abrasive, unhinged and often offensive. And I think that kind of approach garners more attention and response, right? Yeah, and that seemed to be something new I'm guessing in that day and age of thinking about Howard Stern, I think was kind of coming up around that time as well and it was something new um that radio stations at the time didn't really do and so hmm. yeah, I'm I'm not surprised that this is a uh new cool thing and he was able to find an audience with it. And as if these qualities only intensified the longer he was mm. on air. 
1977, he joined KHOW, a larger and more influential station, and his abrasive methods then reached new heights. He was argumentative and rude, insulting listeners, shouting insults and hanging up on callers. Ouch. <laughs> yeah, this seems like something that, yeah, is not... Uh, we, we've seen this playbook before, though. I, I guess I haven't heard about it in the late 70s, early 80s, so that's interesting. So, Asit, here's a clip from Alan Berg's radio show. Well, give me an example, sir. You're going nowhere. Okay, okay. Okay, well, I guess you got nowhere to go. Huh? <laughs> Boy, I'll tell you, that one killed me. Line two, you're on KOA. Well, sometimes the way the people act between wrestling fans and him, I'm not sure anybody does have a brain. <laughs> yeah, he sounds like uh, not my type of uh, radio host, uh, but I can understand why people would tune into him time and time again. You're absolutely right, Asad. It was not uncommon for studio guests to walk out mid-show. And yet, people couldn't help but continue to tune in. And I'm thinking, if we were to think of a podcaster like that, can you think of somebody, Asad? The, what comes to mind is <laughs> are all those Fox News hosts. I don't know why. Yeah. I don't listen to any of them. But in my head, they're argumentative and angry and aggressive and, and all that kind of stuff. I'm sure there's some on the left as well that I I don't listen to. But um, yeah, not, not my type of uh, podcast uh, or radio shows that I listen to. But I still get this. While surely aggressive, Berg's comments were increasingly witty humorous and intelligent so he was an intelligent guy yeah i believe it yeah for sure so physically he was tall and thin with a full helmet of gray hair and a large scraggly white beard and i said i googled alan berg and that's the exact description <laughs> that i <laughs> saw right. he has funny hair um a lot of hair but you know in a funny way he was willing to make bold statements, as we said earlier, and discuss topics that no one else would touch. In short, he never played it safe. Berg's views were largely liberal, so that's a good thing. He was quick to criticize anti-Semites, the KKK, neo-Nazis, and other right-wingers. There was something provocative about Berg's approach. He had the power to really make you think. And more than that, Asad, he had the power to make you feel. Yeah. In an interview with Rolling Stones writer Stephen Singular, Berg said, and I quote, I stick it to the audience and they love it. Everybody here is dying to bust out, to feel, unquote. And this is precisely what Berg did. You know, Sally, it sounds like how a lot of people have these kind of relationships with the podcasters and the hosts that they listen to. You know, it's a they really feel connected one-on-one -on -one to them. You know, I, I'm, I'm hoping that some of our listeners feel that connection to us, but he seems like he was able to really have that just really unique connection point to his listeners through the radio. You're right, Asa, but I don't want to be provocative in in-your-face kind of way, right? I do want to be respectful while sure. I'm getting my point across. People who want to be provocative, good for them. Right. But that's not something that I would do. Yeah, I think I'm I'm the same way, but uh, you know, I, I I went through a phase where I was a Howard Stern listener back when huh. you know, my late teens, early twenties, and I understand that appeal of listening to a shock jock, um, which you know it sounds like this that's what Berg was, so I totally get it. Right. 
In another interview with Stephen Singular, one longtime listener explained her love-hate relationship with Burke. She said, and I quote, I get mad at him, but I always come back to his program. He's so alive in ways that many people aren't. He makes me think. Although I never call his show, I always talk back to the radio. Even when I'm driving my car, he makes me respond. I'm never silent when he's on. Unquote. I said, this is what he did, right? He made people think. Yeah, and I think that's great. And I feel like we don't have enough of that going on right now. I feel like we're in our own little, you know, vacuums and uh, echo chambers and yeah. we don't listen to things that push us and, and make us, you know, think. And so I'm glad that he was able to reach a wide range of listeners to push them on their views. And that's why he's so popular, Asad. His popularity was reflected in both listenership and polls. In a 1979 poll, Burke was determined to be both the most disliked and the most <laughs> popular radio host in I the guess. region. Isn't that funny? Yeah, that's really great. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's for this reason that Berg is hired by KOA, a large commercial radio station in Denver. The deal allowed him to say essentially anything he pleased. Would you want to do that, Asad? Maybe, you know, say anything that pleased you <laughs> without any filter? Look. I think that, that this is the dream for a lot of people is for them to say what's on their mind and say what they think and not have society judge them or cancel them or, or whatever. And so, yeah, I think that like this is really of interest to me and I'm really fascinated by him and especially the way that he was able to transform his career from essentially struggling in college and then, you know, being an alcoholic and unhappy with his job into a, a really popular radio host. I think it's pretty, pretty interesting. And uh, I can't wait to learn more. So, Sally, actually, let's take a quick break. And when we return, uh, we'll continue our discussion of Berg and get into some of the dangers of his radio approach. Welcome back to Invisible Hate. So, Sadia, it seems like Allenberg's methods were like really offensive to a lot of people. Did this ever come back to bite him before his murder? Unfortunately, I said it did. Berg's approach proved to be quite dangerous and came with several unintended consequences. Over the years, Berg reported receiving numerous death threats, yet he didn't seem to be all that concerned by them. In 1979, the talk show host got into a heated shouting match with a caller. This particular caller claimed that the local district attorney showed favoritism toward Denver's Jewish community. Mm. Berg wouldn't have it and he was quick to let the caller know of his disapproval. Now, Berg didn't know this, but the caller was Fred Wilkins, the organizer of the Colorado chapter of Guess What I Said? The KKK. Oh, man. Okay. About a week after their argument, Wilkins burst into the station while Berg was on air. What? Yes. He immediately pointed a gun at the host. <laughs> what? Saying, and I quote, I'm Fred Wilkins. You will die. Oh, my God. So, wait. I mean, this is just like the sign of the times, right? In the late. 1970s, you could literally just walk into a studio while the show was on and pull a gun on the host. Like, that is 
That is wild to me, Salia, that That's that happened. That's exactly what happened, Asad. The claim, however, turned out to be no more than a threat and Wilkins <laughs> fled the studio only to be caught and charged a few only days later. Only in America. Later. This is crazy <laughs> to me. Wow, what a story. Can you imagine if someone did that today? Like, uh, there would be, I don't even know, it would be like the number one story across the country. Unbelievable. It's bizarre. So yeah. The charges were later dropped. And I don't know why, though. <laughs> of course. Yeah, just the member of the KKK walks into your radio show and pulls out a gun and the charges were later dropped. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but even worse, in February of 1984, a man named David Lane called into the show to express his anti-Semitic views. He said, and I quote, I think the Jews are still firmly in control of the Soviet Union. And I think they are responsible for the murder of 50 million white Christians, unquote. That is so bigoted, Asad. Yeah, for sure. In response, Berg humiliated him on air, calling him a sick and pathetic human being, which makes sense to me. Yeah. Here's a clip of the interaction. Pretty crazy interaction, right? Well, little did Berg know he had humiliated a clansman and a member of the Aryan nation and its offshoot, the Order. Oh, okay. Just four months later, this very man would take part in Berg's murder. Oh, no. Given Berg's Jewish upbringing, liberal views, and frequent attacks on white supremacist neo-Nazi groups, it's likely that the order already viewed him unfavorably. But this interaction certainly didn't help his case and may very well have served as a motivation for his murder. Yeah, Sadia, this is kind of crazy. Like, well, first of all, you know, for members of the KKK and the order to be calling into a radio show. I mean, that is really interesting to me. What the hell is that? Yeah. yeah, And then, you know, the fact that Berg can call them out on it. I think that was really admirable. And for him to do it, you know, so publicly is great. It's just so sad that this essentially led to his murder. You know, Sadia, so given his reputation, was Berg's death, did it elicit some sort of public response? It must have, right? Like, how did people react to his murder? Absolutely, Asad. People were really upset by Berg's murder. According to the Rolling Stone, after his death, many people admitted just how much Berg had meant to them and how much they missed his wild, unpredictable, insistent, overwhelming voice. In an interview with Rolling Stone's writer, Stephen Singular, one listener said, and I quote, All of us have lost a friend and maybe even a mentor. But on a larger scale, there is a loss of freedom every time something like this happens. Even subconsciously, people will resist saying what's on their minds because someone who's out there listening and polishing a gun won't like what they say and will blow their head off. If you're a public person, and hold some unpopular beliefs, your life is in jeopardy. 
unquote. That's so yeah, true, so, Asad. It's true even today. So true, and it's it's so unfortunate that it's true. In Berg's memory, many listeners brought flowers to his apartment, scattering them across the driveway where he was shot. Asad, this is just so sad. So heartbreaking, yeah. They even went so far as to stick roses in the bullet holes in his garage door. Hmm. Many listeners drove past his vacant apartment every day for a week. Then, on the one-week anniversary of his death, people drove home from work with their lights on as a tribute to Bert. The day after his death, KOA talk show host Ken Hamblin led a program in which listeners and co-workers eulogized Bert. Denver then held a massive memorial service for the talk show host, a memorial that was attended by everyone from the big shot businessman to the local mailman. In short, as if people missed Berg and they sought to pay their respects. Yeah, I mean, this obviously shows how important he was to the community and how much he was respected by, you know, everyone in that community. And it's, it's nice to see them all come together and honor him and pay respect in that way. Sadly, let's take another quick break, and when we come back, we'll discuss the perpetrators of this awful crime. Welcome back to Invisible Hate. So, Sadia, would love to know more about Berg's murderers. So, I said it's believed that Berg's murder was planned and orchestrated by members of the neo-Nazi white supremacist group known as the Order. According to CNN, in the early 1980s, many white supremacist leaders were beginning to lure followers with the hopes of recruiting them to launch revolts against the U.S. government. Mm. I said we are seeing that happen now. It's yeah. so bizarre. It's crazy how history repeats itself. But yeah, 40 years later, we're still dealing with this. So one of these leaders was Robert Matthews. A charismatic man in his 30s, Matthews had been involved in various right-wing anti-Semitic groups such as the National Alliance for several years. Matthews, by the way, took his inspiration from the Turner Diaries. Asad, have you heard of the Turner Diaries? Yeah, actually, I've read it. Oh, really? Yeah, I read it like 20 years ago. You know, again, how history repeats itself, you know, whatever it was. This was also a book um, that was in the news back then. And so I was like, what is this all about? And so I read it. So it's a novel and it's trash. But yeah, why don't you share with our listeners what it actually is? So it's a work of fiction by neo-Nazi leader William Luther Pierce, written under the pseudonym Andrew McDonald. This fictional story depicts the violent overthrow of the U.S. government and the extermination of all non-white enemies. That's crazy. Mark Potok, a senior fellow at the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right, explains the story well. In an interview with nonprofit news organization Retro Report, Potok said, The Turner Diaries depicted a group of people who made war on the federal government, uh, culminating in the blowing up of the FBI headquarters and the nuclear bombing of the state of Israel. Matthews not only based the name of the order on part of the book, but more importantly, used the novel to shape and guide his decisions as a group leader. I said, this is so mind-boggling to me. You read a book which is 
hate-filled, right? And then you take inspiration from it? Yes and no. I mean, like, you know, novels or books are supposed to be, you know, some of them can be inspirational. And yeah, it's really sad that this one inspires people to do such horrible, heinous things. But, you know, that's the nature of literature, right? So, yeah, it's crazy that people find inspiration out of this book. And it's really just scary that this book was used as a guide by Matthews. It's just, it's absurd. You're absolutely right, said That's pretty crazy. According to the Denver Post, in 1983, Matthews and eight other men gathered in a Washington state farmhouse to officially form the order, a group dedicated to the separation of the races and the annihilation of Jewish people. According to Mark Potok, the order had big plans. Here's another clip of Mark Potok's interview. The order wanted to fund the rest of the radical right to create essentially an army of white men. The Northwest Pacific region soon became the home of this terrorist organization. Oh man, Portland again. Oh my God, I said, what's <laughs> happening? Yeah. The order funded their operations, get this, I said, by robbing several banks and attacking armored wow. trucks. So this is how they were funding. Ocean's 11 here, yeah, interesting. After accumulating more than 3.5 million through illegal means, the group moved on to higher level crimes. In April of 1984, the neo-Nazi group targeted a synagogue in Boise, Idaho, setting off a bomb. Whoa. Thankfully, no one was reported hurt. Around the same time, the order created a hit list. This list included TV producer Norman Lear, co-founder of the Southern Poverty Law Center, Morris Deese, Kansas-based federal judge, Wayne Justice, and you guessed it right, radio show host, Alan Berg. While Berg wasn't their number one target, they decided to go after him first as he was the most accessible. Alternatively, he may very well have been moved up in the list following his aggressive interaction with member David Lane. So we don't know why they targeted either. As I said, he was an easy target or this was post his interaction with David Lane. Once the decision had been made, the plan was set into motion. The group is believed to have tracked Berg's movements and habits for several weeks before his assassination. So crazy. Wow. I said, this really freaks me out. Now, I'm an anxious person. And <laughs> reading this is making me even more anxious. Yeah, you're going to have to look outside your window, make sure nobody's driving by and I scoping do, at your house. Especially white supremacists. Yeah. Anyways, much of this intel was allegedly collected by one of the members named Margaret Craig. Craig gathered information in an intelligence folder, including when Berg left and returned from home, the cars he drove, his address, and more. Once enough information had been collected, the group gathered to carry out the plan. Bruce Carroll Pierce is believed to have shot the machine gun, killing Bert, David Lane is believed to have driven the getaway car, Richard Scutari is believed to have helped devise the plan. Some even believe that order leader Robert Matthews was involved. I mean, this is crazy. This is like a legit 
operation, Sadia, like with exactly. Yeah, an entire plan and maps and addresses and you know stakeouts and all that kind of stuff. It's really cruel and unfortunate. Really, just nuts. But I want to know more. I want to share more. We're gonna stop there because this is a big story and we decided it requires two parts to tell so next week we'll be back we're going to cover the investigation the trials and a whole lot more and we're going to talk about what we always talk about whether or not this murder was actually a hate crime or not exactly i said thank you so much for listening to part one of this episode if you want to learn more check out links in the show notes about the case Please email us your thoughts on this story or any other story that you think we should cover. You can reach us at info at invisiblehatepodcast.com. You can also tweet us or hit us up on Instagram. Just search for Invisible Hate Podcast. And by the way, we have a new cover art. Oh, yeah. I hope you guys like that new cover. Yeah. Tell us what you think about it. Thanks again for listening. Invisible Hate is a joint production of Rafaelion Media and Immigrantly. We'd like to thank our team, which includes Michaela Strather, Emmanuel Monaghan, and Paroma Chakravarti. Our music was done by Simon Hutchinson. We will be back next week with part two of this story. Until then, I'm Asad Bhatt. And I'm Sadia Khan. See you then. Bye.